we go. Another show, another day, another 50 cents. McCown, Shannon, right. who keeps most of my step. 50 cents. What? There's a little jump in your step. You know, the Masters is next week. Major League Baseball starts next week. A little Friday, jump in your step. Friday is going to be a lovely day. Next Friday. I'll watch, uh, I'll watch Augusta during the day, starting yeah. in the morning, presumably, and then uh, flip on the ball game at uh, 7, 7.30, whenever they start. I, I watched uh, I watched a little bit of the uh, women's amateur from Augusta. Oh, I oh, watched a goodness. bit too. Yeah. Oh, just it looks so beautiful. I mean, well, it's time. Just, I, yeah, that's right. I, so I went online and ordered golf balls, Bob. Did you? <laughs> well, I'll tell you, I I could have given you a few. I, I got a garage full. Um, but, but but they have your name on them. I want my name on them. They don't have my name on them. What? I, you I don't would, have customized I would, I would, balls? Well, I would put my name on them before I gave them to you just to piss you off. But <laughs> I drove by. Now, you know, I have a uh, reasonably famous golf club, a uh, three and a half minute drive from my front door. Yes. Yeah. I drove by there the other day. And guess what? Yes. They're grounds playing. crew. Grounds crew oh. was out. No, they're not playing. Oh. But the oh. grounds crew was out working on it. And um, this, well, that's a good sign. That's exciting. Yeah, it sure is. Sure baseball, is. baseball. Baseball, though. Baseball, a uh, week today, uh, we're going to talk about it. Where are the Blue Jays at? Who do we like? Um, we're going to go down the whole list of players and who may, who's going to make it, who's going to play where, and uh, hopefully you'll be uh, interested. Well, it's always interesting. Buck Martinez will join us from Florida when we come back after these messages. Count and Shannon back with you uh, one week today, John. Uh, the uh, baseball Ooh. season commences. One we did we've we've already forgotten that we we thought it may not start on time. Uh, well, it isn't starting exactly on time, is it? Buck Pretty Martinez close. is with us. What are they a week late? Yeah, they're a week late. Two series, and the series will be spread out. Uh, the Baltimore series will be added on at the end of the season. The Tampa series will be added on as two doubleheaders and a day off single game. So they'll be spread out in the course of the season, but the season will be extended by three games at the end. Gotcha. So now here's a question I've, I've never asked you, I don't think. As a, um, a former player, former manager, longtime broadcaster, well, longtime everything, what are you looking for when you watch spring training? We are always cautioned about don't make too much of spring training. But right. what, what kinds of things, when you were managing, what kinds of things were you actually looking for that gave you an indication of where the team might be, might be going? As a manager, I looked for how engaged the players were in the daily drills and, you know, how much they were into it, what they were like when they came into camp, how prepared they were, what kind of work they'd done in the offseason. And uh, I think in watching this particular camp, uh, I saw all of those boxes checked very effectively. Players came in camp engaged. They came in in good shape. They knew it was going to be a, an abbreviated spring training. They all came in prepared, and then, although it's very short, I think they're getting an awful lot of work done in a very condensed period of time. Are they, do you sense there's, I, I mean, you, you have to sense there's a level of confidence, but it seems to me in the limited number of times I've seen interviews and things, it seems to be a quiet confidence. They don't seem to be too outrageous about what they think this team could be. Do yeah. you, what do you sense? Yeah, I think you're right on the money there. I, I think this team is very confident, but uh, they're very humble. They're very quiet. They know how difficult it is to win. Uh, they won 91 games last year, and they went home. So I think they know that it's not about, hey, we got a great lineup on paper. We're the best team in the East. Everybody's picking us to win. And Alec Manoa mentioned it yesterday in an interview with uh, Dan and I during the game. And when he came out of the game, he, I asked him about World Series expectations. He says, no, we have expectations to win every day. And that's a good thing. And when you go out with that kind of attitude, no matter who you're playing, when you step on the field expecting to win, good things are going to happen. And I think that's where the Blue Jays are right now. This abbreviated spring training, Buck, I would assume the biggest issue will be pitching. Is that fair? Yeah, it is, John. There's no question about it. And I think uh, one thing the Blue Jays have done very effectively is they built up the depth of their pitching. In the last couple of years, uh, the front office, the managing, the coaches were, were looking for pieces to plug in to the bullpen and to the rotation. Now they have a bonus, a surplus. So they're trying to pare down 
the number of people they're going to take in the bullpen. They're going to take 10 pitchers out of spring training in the bullpen. So they'll have a 15-man pitching staff until May 2nd. So they have enough bodies and enough talent to get through the first month of the season. Tough schedule. 10 straight games to start the season, one off day in April. And you don't expect your starters to pitch six innings right out of the chute. They'll pitch five innings. And Manoa was going to pitch five, maybe even longer yesterday, but he had such a long half inning when the Blue Jays were putting up a bunch of runs that they shut him down. They didn't want him to sit for 20 minutes, get back up and try to crank it up again. So that's why his outing was abbreviated. But I think they have enough arms to get through April. I haven't. Uh, I haven't looked. Ex- I usually have looked at the schedule. I haven't this year. But I, there was something on the broadcast the other day suggested. Cor- you'll correct me if I'm wrong here. Like half of their first thirty something games are with New York, Tampa, and Houston. Is that true? Yeah, and yeah, it is true. And uh, they're going to see New York a lot. They're going to see Houston a lot, and uh, and Tampa Bay. It's it's a tough schedule. But you know what, man. Anybody you play in the major leagues is tough. It doesn't make any difference when you play them or who you play. I mean, everybody had peaks and valleys last year. The Blue Jays, of course, were great once they got back to Rogers Center playing at home. They were 500 basically in Dunedin and Buffalo. But once they got to Rogers Center, they really turned it up a notch and played much better at home. So I think the biggest thing that they have to do now is just remember that mindset that Manoa talked about. Just play every day. And don't worry about the schedule and don't look ahead. Hey, Texas is coming to town. They're not so good for opening weekend, but we got the Yankees next Monday. They're not going to think like that. They're going to take every single game, face value, and play as hard as they can each day. There will be people who will say, well, they played better at Rogers Center because they have big bats and it's um, it's not a park with deep um, outfield. But they came from Buffalo and uh, and Dunedin, which are band boxes as well. I mean, you can make the argument that, that the Rogers Center is tougher than either of those two places to hit home. No, no question about it. Rogers Center is a much bigger ballpark than those other two ballparks and a much more daunting challenge for hitters. But at the same time, it is a good hitters ballpark and the Blue Jays love it. I think what's really going to be interesting on the opening weekend is the players' reaction to a full house at Rogers Center. Many of these players have never seen it because of the fact they weren't a great team for a while, then the COVID hit, and then limited access for fans, and all of a sudden, and Manoa said it yesterday in the interview, he said, well, I think there are only nine tickets left for Friday night. So the players know what's ahead for them, and some of these players are going to be really pumped up for that. Actually, on the topic of Manoa, yesterday he hit a couple of guys. Uh, Back to back, actually. Yeah. Any any concern with that, or is that just something early? Or in, actually, in listening to the broadcast, you, you mentioned that that was a little bit of his 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 biggest issue, correct? Yeah, it was an issue for him. I don't know if it was his biggest issue, but it was something that he wanted to address. And with that, Pete Walker made a mechanical move and squished him from the third base side of the rubber to the middle of the rubber to improve his angle. And I know Bob. Mm-hmm. You're a golfer. You understand the value of angles and lining up and setups and everything else. It's in baseball. Pete moved Barrios and Manoa last year from the third base side to the middle of the rubber to improve their angle and keep the ball on the plate more frequently. And Manoa, yeah, pitches got away from him yesterday. But it was just a couple of pitches. He lost his release point, And I think he's over that. You know, he led the league in hit batters last year. He had 16 guys last year. And he's a big guy. And a lot of the other hitters I know are thinking, man, he thinks he's a bully out there. He's just going to hit us. It was just a mechanical issue. And I think he's resolved that. Um, I'm reluctant to do this. But when, when I was I was a pitcher when I was a kid, and I was taught to move from one edge of the other. Were you on the same the team as uh, Christy Mathewson, right? You and Christy Mathewson. Christy Mathewson yes. and, um, and so. yeah, Cy Young. Uh, Cy was actually uh, number two in the rotation. Behind I was going to say you, you were number one in that Shut rotation. Up. So, uh, <laughs> but but here's here's the thing. I I was taught to move from one uh, side of the rubber to the other, depending on whether it was a left-handed hitter or a right-handed hitter, or whether I wanted to work the outside or the inside of the plate. And I've seen pitchers do that, um, move from one edge to the other edge when a hitter hits from the other side of the plate. But has that philosophy now been ta- sort of taken away? Yeah, I think so. I mean, because uh, obviously you're going to have an idea when the pitcher sets up on one side of the plate or the other side of the plate what he's trying to do. 
So, you know, it's kind of like all of the stuff about uh, tipping pitches and sign stealing and everything else. When you make a dramatic move as a pitcher or a catcher, hitters are going to pick up on it. So you want to stay in the same spot all the time and just be able to command both sides of the plate from one spot on the rubber instead of moving back and forth. And I think years ago, catchers used to move up when they call breaking balls and move back when they call fastballs because breaking balls were going to be in the dirt. So we looked for that. I mean, I remember I, I called pitches for Willie Upshaw when he was hitting ahead of me. And, and when it was a fastball, I'd say, come on, Willie. And it was a breaking ball. I'd say, hey, Upshaw, let's go. So it was that simple. But you just did it on the catcher, not necessarily knowing what pitch was coming. You just assumed that because he's moving forward in his setup, he's calling a pitch that's going to be in the dirt, which is more often than not a breaking ball. So as yeah, a catcher, just... let me ask this question, John. As yeah. a catcher. Do you like the idea of setting up on the inside or the outside of the plate uh, after you call a pitch? Or is your preference to just kind of slide a bit one way or the other? That's pretty good, Bob. Bobcat, you're all over this stuff. That's exactly what I did. When I threw the ball back to the pitcher, I would set up where I wanted the next pitch before I squatted down. Yeah. So I would just move after I threw the ball, I would move over to the outside corner, sit down and not move again. So it didn't look like I was moving to the corner. I was sitting basically in the middle of the plate, according to where I'd set up. But no, once you set up, you don't want to move because people are going to pick up on that. Well, exact, that's exactly what I was thinking. So you're, you're, the peripheral vision of the hitter then generally isn't good enough to pick that up if you do it before he's set and, and before you call the next pitch, right? right. I mean, what they're looking for is movement. Yeah, and you can sense movement when um, and, you know, no one was better at it than Cliff Johnson. He used to waggle his bat back and forth and he'd say, hey, Buckaroo, how are you doing today? I said, Cliff, just shut up and look at the picture because he was looking at where I was sitting. That was the whole point of his conversation. <laughs> but yeah, I was pretty slick about that. You know, there's so many things going on now with this new pitch com. And yesterday's game, we had a very interesting exchange between Adam Simber and Kellen Deglin the Canadian catcher. Deglin was using it, and I don't know if he'd used it before, but I spoke to him after the game about the confusion. And what happened was his controller on his wrist, it looks like a remote keypad, and it has nine numbers on it, and it has volume control, and you just put in a number, and that will be heard in the pitcher's hat. He's got an audio microphone in his hat. And really? Fastball away. And Simber will acknowledge that and they'll step on the mound. I, I think it's going to be great. I love it because it really adds uh, some speed to it. But what happened yesterday was Kellen Daglin hit a pitch. Simber smiled and went no because he didn't have that pitch. And oh. the, the <laughs> controller wasn't programmed to Simber. So he called the split finger pitch for Simber and Simber didn't have a split finger pitch. So they had a, a funny laugh about that. And then I talked to Daglin after the game. That's exactly what happened. I, I, I want to go back to the position on the rubber. How, how long does it take for the pitcher to change? How is it instantaneous? Is it, it, it I mean, like when you talk about, you talked about Bob's golf swing, you know, Bob takes a couple of swings before the ball goes where it's supposed to. How, how, how long does it take for the, uh, for the pitcher to have the effect of putting the, the ball not that close to the batters? Yeah, it's, um, it's a basic. Some pitchers get into such a routine, they don't want to change anything. Right. Really uncomfortable when you ask them to change. But other pitchers like Barrios and Manoa, they're like a sponge. Whatever's going to help me, I'm open for it. I'll try it and see if it helps. And that's the way Manoa and Barrios were both last year with the Pete Walker's suggestion that they moved to the middle. So it was really kind of interesting how they handled it. But you're right. If, if a pitcher's not comfortable doing it, and, and I had Billy Koch, and, and Billy Koch was our closer, and Billy Koch threw a four-seam fastball. I went to Billy and I said, you know what? We think if you threw a two-seam fastball, you'd have dramatic movement throwing that two-seam fastball. And he tried it for a couple of times. I think he had three straight save situations, converted them all without any effort at all, came into my office and said, you know, I'm not comfortable throwing that two-seat basketball. I said, well, I'm very comfortable when you throw it. <laughs> <laughs> but he, he stopped throwing it. He just wasn't comfortable doing it. He went back to his four-seamer. Well, that's interesting. And by the way, John, I would like to tell you that I, I almost never take a practice swing on the golf course. 
No, and so it's even worse because the first, you know, the the, the, the three straight holes off the tee, you're, you know, you're, you know, you're not doing the right thing, man. Come on. Well, my, I'm going to shut my shade here a little bit because it's a little sunny on me. Yeah, you're you're okay for us, but if it's bothering you, then by all means, go ahead. Yeah, um, yeah. Um, well, <laughs> now you're had, more concerned about your golf swing. Yeah, I was more concerned about my swing. Yeah. <laughs> and maybe, maybe the way my game has been the last couple of years, maybe I should be taking more practice swings. Practice swings. Well, I just figure I only got so many good ones in me, and I don't want to waste one when the ball's not there, right? Your practice swings are generally better than your normal swing. Well, yeah. So I just figured, well, get up and hit it. Uh, yeah. It'll, it'll go fairways, somewhere. That fairway's wider, Buck. <laughs> so um, I don't know whether we talked to you about this the last time you were on or not, but I'm wondering with starting pitchers not stretched out as much as – um, they have been. How do you handle the rotation? Do you stick with a five man, the five-man rotation you're going to keep all year? Or are you going to be more inclined to bring in, I don't know, a Stripling or a Pearson or somebody to, to start the odd game here or there? I think initially that was the thought in spring training. Early on in the spring, I think they were thinking about six men in their rotation. But then again, they were hoping that Nate Pearson would take a step forward and he'd be that guy that would be able to it, and he hasn't. And then Nate was supposed to pitch yesterday, and he has uh, some sort of illness. He wasn't feeling well. He doesn't have COVID. And he's, he went home yesterday, but he was supposed to pitch yesterday. And you know what? Um, I don't know how sick he was, but uh, you know, in my situation, if I were in his boots, I think I would have pitched. Yeah. You know, unless I'm throwing up on the mound, I think it's important to get out there and you know, stake your claim to a spot on this team. But, uh, you know, there's been a couple of disappointments in the spring as far as the pitchers go. I think Julian Merriweather has not pitched as well as we would hope, and neither has Pearson. And I think that's a concern because, you know, what's Pearson going to accomplish if he goes to the minor leagues? He's going to overpower minor league hitters. He's got great stuff, but he hasn't learned how to command the strike zone and throw his pitches consistently in the strike zone to be effective. And for Merriweather... He threw a couple of pitches at 98 miles an hour and got beat on his changeup yesterday. Uh, you know, I, I just don't understand it. I, I think instead of trying to realize what your strengths are, I think he's trying to trick people at times and cause some problems. But it is spring training, and guys, you know, aren't supposed to be result-oriented, but I know what you mean. These, these two guys have to be result-oriented because they're trying to make mm -hmm. the team. And I think uh, I get that's what everybody's looking for. They're looking for results from these guys. For, for Kikuchi and Ryu and Manoa and Barrios, it doesn't make any difference. Jordan mm -hmm. Romano, you know, he's got a little bit of a sprained ankle right now. It doesn't make a difference where he or Mesa does. It's, uh, you know, we, we know that David Phelps, if he's healthy, he's probably going to make the team. It doesn't matter that he gave up some hits yesterday. But for Merriweather and for Pearson, they, they need some results. Well, Another, yeah, actually, sorry, John, so ahead. the So, no, the... You say results-oriented for Pearson, and all I ever hear about Pearson is the only result he seems to be concerned about is velocity. And does it, that has to change, doesn't it? Yes, it does. It certainly has to change. And I had a great chat with Jim Leland yesterday about that. And I asked Leland, I said, who were the best pitchers you had? He said, Kevin Brown, Max Scherzer, Justin Verlander. And I said, well, what was it about those guys? He said they could all pitch. He said, these guys today can hit a 100-mile-an-hour fastball if you can't locate it and you don't have movement. And that's what Scherzer and Verlander and Kevin Brown, they all have movement. Tom Seaver, the late Tom Seaver, maybe the best pitcher we've seen for a number of years, always said there are three elements of pitching. Velocity, location, and movement. And velocity is the least important. Location and movement are the most important. And you ask a hitter, these guys now, they have a, a pitching machine that can throw 105 miles an hour, and they can hit it. So it's not velocity that worries them. It's change of speeds and location and movement. So when you have a moving fastball at 94, or if you're Marco Estrada and throw 91 with a great changeup, you can have success. Mm -hmm. So I think you're right, John. Uh, Nate needs to understand that. He's not going to overpower hitters with pure velocity. He has to locate his pitches and get his second and third pitches over. Well, we assume that the Blue Jays coaching staff has been preaching that to him, correct? Yes, yes they have. 
is he just being stubborn and not listening? I don't know or? if he's being stubborn or he doesn't understand, you know, how you do it. I mean, it's, it's one thing to say, well, here's the delivery and you need to do this. But John, you asked me a great question a while ago with how long does it take for a pitcher to take this in if you ask him to change something? Sometimes people can't take it in. Yeah. They just are incapable of doing that. And you know what? We had Al Leiter. And now, of course, Al Leiter's son, Jack Leiter, is one of the best pitching prospects in all of baseball. There's a great article on The Athletic about Leiter and what he did with his son, Jack, as a youngster. And he always told him, just do your best and figure out how to consistently throw strikes. Al Leiter walked 100 guys in 100 innings one of his first years in the big leagues. But then he was able to make a change and adapt, and he became a terrific major league pitcher for a long time. But it's all about, you know, some guys just never get it. I mean, I've played with guys that could throw 100, but they were not effective because they didn't throw it over and they didn't have a secondary pitch. And they all they understood was velocity. How many times have we seen some young pitchers throw a pitch, turn around, look at the scoreboard to see how hard he right. threw it, instead of looking at the hitter and seeing what the hitter's reaction was to it? That tells you more than the scoreboard with the velocity. What does the hitter think about your pitches? If you were behind the plate today, would you be happier with a pitcher who had six different pitches, like a Ryu, or somebody um, somebody who had one or two? You only had maybe you had a fastball and a um, a tight slider, and you might think of who I'm referring to, um, former Yankee pitcher, uh, who just got everybody out all the time which 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 is a better scenario a better scenario is if that guy with two pitches can locate those two pitches it magnifies into about eight because of location you know you take a fastball you go up and in up and away middle in middle away low and in low and away that's six pitches you have with one pitch and you can do the same with a breaking ball so if he can command those two pitches he can be effective i think about jim clancy and how effective he was with two pitches as a starter he had a fastball and a slider and, you know, he didn't pitch inside. He couldn't pitch inside. He pitched down and away. And he had a very good career. But I think we're seeing something with Trent Thornton right now that's pretty interesting. And he was a guy that needed five pitches. You know, I got a fastball, a cutter, a sinker ball, a changeup, and a curveball. Well, they have taken all those pitches away from him. The other day, he was facing the Yankees' A lineup and overmatched him with fastball slider. He throws fastball slider and a curveball now. And I text him afterwards and I said, now, I think you finally figured out what you need to do to be effective. We had Kelvin Mescobar, who had five mm -hmm. different pitches, but he couldn't necessarily master all five. And I think it's important for you to understand what you are as a pitcher. If you can locate three pitches and throw strikes with all three pitches, you can pitch in any role in the major leagues. Well, the guy I was referring to is Mariano Rivera. You know, well, he um, had one pitch. <laughs> well, yeah. a cut fastball. That's all he threw. He threw a cut fastball to both sides of the plate. Well, but I mean, he was he was more often than not unhittable, ah, and you and yeah. you knew what was coming. We will never see another Mariano Rivera. No, no. He was such an exceptional pitcher, and he started out his career as a starter. And everybody said, well, he didn't have enough pitches to be a starter. Well, he had one pitch to be a reliever. And I had many players who switch hitters. So Felipe Lopez asked me one time, do you mind if I hit right-handed against Mariano Rivera? I said, I don't care. You stand on your head as long as you can hit him. But, you know, that cutter coming inside the left-handed hitters, that always was tough for him. But, yeah, Mariano Rivera. We won't see another Mariano Rivera. Well, the and only I other kind of pitcher really that I can he Sorry, created a lot of problems for pitchers because everybody thinks they can throw a cutter like Mariano Rivera. And yeah. <laughs> well, and the thing about it was it didn't break a whole lot. No, it's only about this big. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. So it went from the barrel to the label, barrel to the label. Right. Now these guys are throwing cutters, and what it becomes is a bad fastball. That's all. Yeah. Well, and the only other kind of pitcher that I can think of that basically is a one-pitch pitcher is a knuckleball pitcher. Yeah. Right? And I mean, you can get by with two, especially like Romano, if you're a closer, fastball slider. Yeah. Who's Gossage, fastball slider. You know, most of the closers have two pitches. That's it. Craig Kimbrough, fastball, curveball. And you can get by. You're going to face three guys, hopefully, and that's it. Uh, now, I think the scary part is a role as Chapman is developing a splitter. We yeah. saw that at the end of last year. And, you know, he's not throwing 103 anymore, 
but he can throw 98 with a slider and a splitter. So I, I think he's going to be tough if he can master that splitter. So I, I, I'm not sure we resolved everything, anything on Pearson. Do you think it's just inevitable he's going to become a reliever finally? Um, boy, it sure looks like it. Yeah. yeah. I, I just don't think that, you know, I think, and I've said this a lot on broadcast, I think a starting pitcher is the best athlete on the field because of what he has to do every five days. He doesn't get a chance to play every day. He has to be so focused. And when you think about the great starting pitchers in the history of baseball, they were baseball players. They understand the game. David Cohn, Zach Greinke, Jack Morris, Verlander, there's Max Scherzer. They understand baseball. They're not just guys out there pitching. They know the base stealing aspect of it. They know how to set up a hitter. They're great baseball players. And I think being a starting pitcher and a successful one might be the most challenging aspect of Major League Baseball of all. Um, back to Pearson, if we, did, if we left him, would you send him to Buffalo to, to, as a starter? No, I wouldn't. I'd keep him with Pete Walker. I don't think he can learn anything getting minor league hitters out. I think you have to. And this is what, this is what the Blue Jays did early on with Al Leiter, David Wells, Pat Henkin, Todd Stottlemyre, Jimmy Key. They pitched All out, in the bullpen. They pitched out of the bullpen, and you control their matchups. You see a good matchup, and I think the Blue Jays did a disservice to Pearson last year when they called him up for an emergency start against Houston. Mm -hmm. Like, come on. <laughs> Bring him up against the Pirates or somebody, but not Houston. And he got whacked. And so that's going to knock down his confidence again. But I would keep him with Pete Walker. I think Pete is a, a genius at what he does with his pitching. You can manipulate Pearson's appearances. Pitching when your team is down by three, up by five, get him out there, build his confidence up, have a couple of good innings, get him out. Next time you do the same thing. And he gains confidence each time. And he's not going to recognize that he's doing it against Kansas City or he's doing it against the – Cubs or somebody that's not top echelon. And then all of a sudden you throw him in there against the Red Sox at Fenway. And he's got confidence because he's had success. You have to build a pitcher's confidence. And some pitchers, it takes a little bit longer time to gain that confidence. Buck Martinez, of course, is with us. We'll take a quick break and come back and chat some more. Back after these messages. It's McCallum. It's uh, Shannon. And it's uh, Buck Martinez uh, with us from Florida. So bunch of names I want to throw at you. Has Biagini got a chance to make this team? No, he's in fact been sent out. He oh, he did sent get sent out, out yesterday? Sent out last night after the game. Yeah, and um, he uh, he's an insurance piece. You know, he's 31 years old. Six years ago that he was such a tremendous rookie for the team. But, uh, yeah, he, he got sent out after that game last night. They made a bunch of roster moves, and uh, he was included in that. Anybody else of note? Uh I don't think so. Um, bear with me a second. I'll check my notes. But, you know, I, I think, you know, Thomas Hatch and Anthony Kay got sent out before. So they're not part mm -hmm. of the mix right now. I think a couple of interesting guys, and I mentioned Trent Thornton, but I think Trent Thornton and Taylor Saucedo, in what they did uh, Wednesday night against the Yankees, A lineup, I think, really uh, put them in a pretty good spot to make this team. Uh, like I said, Thornton has minimized his – Arsenal, he's condensed it. And uh, Taylor Salcedo has thrown nothing but strikes down here. Uh, he's given up one hit in four outings. He struck out eight. And uh, he overmatched some very good Yankee hitters. I mean, the big boys in uh, Steinbrenner Field on Wednesday night. So I think he did a lot. I think the Blue Jays want to take, they'd like to have two left-handers in the bullpen, maybe even three with an expanded bullpen and Ryan Barakia, I don't think he's thrown as well as they would have hoped he would. So, you know, even Andrew Vasquez, who's got a very big breaking break curveball slider type pitch. I think he's kind of elevated his lot in this situation as well. So we'll see. I mean, when you think about the bullpen, you know, there are the constants and I don't think Romano is going to be, out for a while with his sprained ankle, but it's Romano, Meza, Simber, Richards, probably Phelps, Stripling, and then you have to figure out who's going to make up the balance of that bullpen. But I think uh, Trent Thornton and uh, Taylor Salcedo have made a case for them to make this team. 
One of the dilemmas that you face in spring training, and I think it's important to, to bring up if people aren't aware of it, is that as a general rule, your opposing team's starting lineup is the best lineup that they're going to see. So, and, and they may play three or four or five innings. Once you get to the sixth inning, generally you've got a bunch of guys named who? A bunch of minor leaguers. And that is when the bullpen guys get a chance to pitch. So success out of the bullpen, sometimes you have to consider the, the relative merit of that because of who they're facing. They're probably facing double A, maybe triple A guys at that point. How, how, I mean, that must be terribly difficult for a manager, for an organization to assess. When that, yeah, that is difficult. And I think what they have done in this situation is Thornton and Salcedo have been, have been pitching in the fourth and fifth and sixth inning before the regulars come out because mm -hmm. they're in competition to make the team. So Pete Walker's aware that he doesn't want them pitching in the seventh, eighth, and ninth when Stanton and Judge and LeMayhew and, and Donaldson are out of the game. Yeah. So both with Thornton and Salcedo, they faced Stanton and Judge and LeMayhew and those guys in that game on Wednesday night. So I think that's why I say, and I think they did a lot to solidify their chance of making this team. Hey, Buck, you know, they, uh, in the offseason, uh, both the, uh, Mark and, and Ross said that they had to, had to address the left side of the plate. Uh, have they done that enough? For this organization, or is it, it? Do you think that they were trying to deflect a little bit of focus of what was supposed to be done with this team? I think that the media picked on that more than Mark and Ross. I think when you look at their lineup, and I've talked to managers Girardi, I talked to uh, AJ Hinch, I talked to Jim Leland about it. You know, everybody says, "Well, the Bojays need a left-handed bat." Well, that'd be great if they could pick up a Jose Ramirez, who's a switch hitter, and he could have played third base, and then you have a left-handed bat that's legit. But mm -hmm. you just can't go out there and say, I'm going to get Larry Walker and put in the middle of this lineup because they're not always available. But what A.J. Hinch and Girardi said to me was, does anybody consider how good their right-handed hitters are? <laughs> because this lineup, and, and we just talked about on the broadcast, this lineup has been classified as the second-best lineup in baseball, second only to the Dodgers. And it's featuring basically one left-handed hitter in Kevin Biggio if he's playing second base. So it's a pretty good lineup. And I don't think pitchers are going, well, I can get to Oscar Hernandez out because he's right-handed. That's not the case anymore. And these guys can hit right-handed pitching. And I don't think it's a worry. I think what they did, John, when they picked up Tapia and replaced Gritchick with Tapia, it's a better fit for this team. Mm -hmm. Because not only now are you worried, you're not worried about getting Gritchick into the DH spot or into outfield and using Teoscar to DH, Tappy is truly a backup outfielder, and you can DH Alejandro Kirk if you want. So now the Blue Jays can carry three catchers to break the season. So Kirk can DH against lefties, and then you can, you know, you can do a lot of different things with this team, as we saw in the lineup yesterday. Vladdy hit second yesterday. So I think there's a lot of ways to manipulate this roster and this lineup to make it the most effective on a given night. Well, you mentioned Biggio. Um, I, I wasn't necessarily going to talk about him, but we know he's, he's a versatile player. He can play a number of different positions. He can be another outfielder for you. He can come and play the outfield. He can play second base. He could play third if he needed to, although Chapman's going to be the principal there. Espinal is a guy I think we gloss over a lot, and I love the kid. Um, and I thought, he, and he was excellent defensively at third base last year and hit the ball, not, not with power, but got a lot of base hits. And this is a team that can use the odd base hit here and there. And he has been, I don't know about you, but every time I've seen him, he's been almost flawless at second base. Is he winning the job at second base right now? I, I would say that he is going to play an awful lot. And I don't think it's going to be a straight platoon system, lefty, righty. I think he and Bishop are going to play second base. But you're right. Until the Blue Jays acquired Matt Chapman, Santiago Espinal was their best infielder. Mm -hmm. He's got the best hands. He can play shortstop. He can back up Bo. Plays third base, as you mentioned, flawlessly. He's a natural second baseman that can play really comfortably there. And, you know, he beefed up. He was on our show yesterday and talked about 15 pounds of muscle that he put on. And, 
you know, he's still only 185 pounds, so he's not a big guy. No. But he's a slick fielder. When you watch Bo and Espinal, and, and you know, Bo's done a great job of, of smoothing out his defense, and Espinal is very smooth and very sure-handed. And I think when you have a guy that is, quote-unquote, an extra guy, you want to make sure that he's not going to lose games for you. And Espinal's not going to lose games with his defense. Might this be Biggio's position to lose, though? And and, and I, 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 I asked that because you you, you so. mentioned actually you mentioned yesterday on the broadcast how much happier happier he is playing second base. So I, I'm just wondering why can't he play 140 there? Yeah, well I don't know if the Blue Jays need him to play 140, but I I don't think I don't characterize him as an everyday second baseman. I think if you're going to be an everyday major league infielder, you've got to be able to hit 25 to 30 home runs. I, I just think that's the requirement nowadays. And he's not that kind of hitter. But when he gets back to being the hitter we saw when he first came up, using a home field, taking his base hits to left field, hitting the occasional home run, he's a 10 to 12, 15 home run guy if he plays every day. That's my estimation. But at the same time, he's a baseball player. You had him on the field. He's not going to make any mistakes. He's going to understand the value of, especially where he's hitting in the lineup, getting on base, moving the runner over, setting the table for the top of the order, whether it's Springer, Guerrero, Bichette, Hernandez, Guriel, Chapman. I mean, you just talk about this lineup. It's incredible. And Kevin knows his role on this team is to get on base and score runs. Well, I, and his, his asset at the beginning of his career, Buck, was that he – he was not shy about taking walks. Yeah. He got away from that when he was a third baseman. He did. I think he had it in his mind. He had to hit like a third baseman. And he was just uncomfortable in every aspect. In the field, at the plate, I think he's in a much better spot. And he's healthy. You know, he got dinged up last spring uh, on the hand. And he got a throw from the outfield that hit him awkwardly on his hand. And it just kind of lingered all year long. Then he had a neck issue. Then he hurt his ACL. And his uh, left hand. So, yeah, there were a lot of things going on with him. He's in a good spot right now, and he's got his confidence back. Chapman come as advertised? Say that again, John? Does Matt Chapman come as advertised? Yeah. Boy, what a special person he is. And we knew that from afar. Obviously, we have seen him play. Terrific defender. An incredible defender with a very accurate arm. You'll remember Scott Rowland in his days with the Blue Jays and how well he threw the ball across the diamond. I mean, every throw was right in the middle of the first baseman's chest. Chapman has that same arm. And he plays deep. And, you know, he's going to be able to move Bo up the middle a little bit more. Bo's strength is to his left, not to his right. And now, because you have Chapman there, Bo doesn't have to cover as much distance to the right as he used to. So now Chapman ranges so far and wide at third base that uh, Bo's going to be able to shade up the middle and not have to make as many backhanded plays as he's had to in the past. That's going to make him a better fielder. But as far as the hitter, I know a lot of people say, well, you know, he's a great fielder, but he can't hit a lick. He's got the record for home runs for the Oakland A's at third base. He had 36 home runs a couple of years ago. The last two years, he's been dealing with a hip injury. He had labrum hip surgery in September of 2020 and then just didn't have enough time to gain strength. Mm -hmm. And you both know, no matter what you do on an athletic field, whether it's a court or a hockey rink or anything, your legs are most important to your foundation. He didn't have his legs underneath him last year. Struck out 202 times, hit some home runs, a lot of solo home runs, but he has bought into the Blue Jays' philosophy of hitting the ball to right field. And we saw that in the game yesterday. Got saw it yesterday, yeah. Yeah. So well, I think he's going to have a big year, especially because he's going to be hitting down in the order, and the pitchers are going to go, wow, I got past all those big hitters, and all of a sudden Matt Chapman's going to be there. <laughs> well, and and Donaldson, who preceded him at third base in, uh, in Oakland when he came to Toronto, I think went from, what, 28 to 41 or something home runs. And he made a comment, I think, last week that, that – expect Chapman to do the same kind of thing hitting in Oakland in that big ballpark where it tends to be a little chilly too well uh, in, in Oakland has so much foul territory too that it always costs you about 10 points on your average no matter what but I remember very vividly when Donaldson came over in 15 the first home run he hit at Rogers Center was right down the right field line and that was an old man moment 
like, oh, man, I love this place. The ball went out to right field, and he all of a sudden he didn't have to pull it like he did in Oakland. And so it just made him a much better hitter. I don't know that Matt Chapman's going to be an MVP right out of the shoot, but I think he's going to have a great season in 2022. So, so what batting numbers for him to be viewed as a success at the plate, what batting numbers does he have to get to average or I think it's run production. Yeah. You know, he's going to strike out. He's a strikeout guy and and nobody cares about strikeouts. But I mean, I care about strikeouts. I want the ball being put into play because of defense, but you guys are old though. Both of you guys are old though. Yeah, we are, but we are old. I know (laughs) 22 of his 27 home runs last year were solo home runs. Something like 33 of his last 38 home runs have been solo home runs. That's not going to happen on this team because there's going to be guys on base when he comes up. So when he hits home runs, I think run production is going to be important. And you know what? He's never driven in 100. I think that's a possibility with this team this year because of the lineup he is in. Spotlight's not on him. Everybody knows he's going to play great defense. He's wonderful at defense. But I think because the spotlight is on Vladdy and Bo and Springer and Teoscar and all those other guys, all of a sudden, pitcher's going to go, wow, I'm down to the bottom of the order now. I don't have to worry. And boom, Matt Chapman is going to. I think he's going to have a big year. Um, Bird has been interesting at first base. Um, what do you do with him? Bird? Yeah. I think he's got a chance to make the team. He's a left-handed bat with power off the bench, and he's had a good spring. You know, a few years ago, he had eight home runs in spring training for the Yankees and then fouled the ball off his foot and had to have surgery, and he just never has been healthy since. Last year was the first season he was healthy for a full year since 2015, and he's had a good spring. He hits the ball the other way. He's got power. He's a first baseman, and, you know, I mean, it looks like he has the upper hand of making this team. But Nathan Lucas, and remember that name, he's had a great spring. And he is one of those guys that you look at him and you go, eh, okay, well, that's all right. And then you watch him play and you go, man, this guy's a ball player. He had a double and a home run against the Yankees on Wednesday night. And he just made a couple of terrific plays in the outfield. He can play all three outfield positions. He's a left-handed hitter and a minor league free agent, played with Tampa Bay. Um, he's opened a lot of the coach's eyes. I think when he came into camp, it was like, oh, here's another body that's going to be able to play some of the spring training games. But all of a sudden, he's starting to get hits, make plays, hustles his ass off, plays hard all the time, and he's an interesting guy. If he doesn't make it out of spring training, he's going to be a guy that if they have a need in the outfield, I mean, they might consider calling him up at some point this year. But he'd be a fifth outfielder if he if he made the team out of spring, He right? would be, but you know what? We don't know where Tapia sits, and I know they traded for Tapia. And, you know, I I don't think they're married to Tapia for the long haul. I think they're concerned about winning. And if they believe that Nathan Lucas gives them a better chance to win than Tapia or Bird, I I think that's what they'll do. I think this team is all about winning. And, And you know what? This is an important year for them. You know, Vladdy, first year of arbitration, Bogo's arbitration next year. Those guys are going to have high price tags. Teo's making $10 million now. I mean, you know, you've got Springer contract. you got Gosman's contract, Ryu's contract, Barrio's contract. You know, the time is now for this team to win and pack Rogers Center all season long. <coughs> Excuse me. So does that mean that you wouldn't be surprised to see this team make another big acquisition early in the season? John, I don't know if it would be a big acquisition, but I know they're always trying to upgrade. Yeah. And Yimmy Garcia, we haven't talked about him yet, but Yimmy Garcia is projected to be an eighth-inning pitcher. And he had a good outing the other day. He was late coming to camp because of visa issues. But uh, I think they would like to add, and I know they had their eye on Kenley Jansen. And they were thinking if they could get Kenley Jansen and everybody moves down a notch, and you know, then things really start to look good. I think ideally... They'd like Simber and Richards to pitch in the sixth and seventh, not the seventh and eighth, and then have Mesa in the eighth, Yimmy Garcia right now in the eighth, and maybe somebody outside the organization come in. Mm. When you look at the Chicago White Sox bullpen, to me, they have the best bullpen in baseball. Liam Hendricks, Craig Kimbrell, Kendall Graveman, Aaron Bummer, 
Garrett Crochet, they got strikeout pitchers all up and down the order. They got three closers in their bullpen right now. So I think the Blue Jays have their eye on improving their bullpen. And if they made a trade before opening day, it wouldn't surprise me. We are all old enough to remember when the DH came into baseball and the DH position initially was restricted for an older player who they perceived could not play the field anymore, but could hit. And there were plenty of those guys around. And so you assigned, okay, you're the DH. And, but those days are done uh, almost everywhere. I mean, is there a guy who is strictly a DH now in, in Major League Baseball? Albert Pujols. Albert Pujols. Uh, yeah, he's not going to okay. be an NBA DH, though. He's going to be a, a role player, and he's not going to be an NBA DH. I think Bob hits on it right. When the DH came in in 73, it was uh, Orlando Cepeda, Tommy Davis, Harmon Killebrew. Those guys were at the end of their career, and they wanted to extend their visibility, if you will, mm. because they were important to the game. And then you had Don Baylor, Hal McCray, Harold Baines, David Ortiz, Edgar Martinez, those were true EHs. But now you're going to rotate that position to get Vladi off his feet, get to Oscar a day off, and they're going to DH. So I think that has become very important. But I don't think there are – I would say David Ortiz will be the last true DH that we see. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. But if you had somebody who fit that category of the early days, if you had that 38-year-old player – who was a lifetime hitter, you know, hit 300, hit 30 home runs, whatever, 100 RBIs, but really couldn't play the field because of physical limitations. Would you go back to something like that if you had that guy? It would have to be pretty special. And, you know, maybe like a Kyle Schwarber. If you had Kyle Schwarber on this team and said, okay, Kyle, you're going to be the DH every day, and once in a while we'll put you at first, or once in a while we'll put you in left. But I don't think the Blue Jays have that guy. You know, I, I don't think Greg Bird would be an everyday DH. I think he would match up against right-handers. I think he'll have a chance to maybe do some damage from the left side if he makes the team. But, uh, yeah, I think they like the fact that they can rotate guys around. You know, everybody's always concerned about, well, you don't want these guys to play too much. Hmm. You know, the resources are better than they've ever been because the the – the theme for the Blue Jays, and it's all over their complex down in Florida, is prepare, compete, recover. Prepare, compete, recover. So they really address the recovery aspect. So after the games, guys are taking care of themselves. They're getting treatment. They're getting nutrition. They're getting a lot of uh, opportunities to be ready for the next day. So, and they just don't push guys to play an awful lot. And I think they value, managers value the DH spot to get guys off their feet. We haven't talked much about this, but I, I just, before we go, and I, I guess John has another question, but you've been around the new complex. Um, because of COVID, we haven't really been exposed to it, what it's like and how different it is. But having been there, how important is that new complex in the structure of this team. When I heard $82 million for a training complex, I thought, how in the world can that be effective? For me, $82 million would have been better spent on a couple of players. <laughs> now that I have seen it, I understand exactly why it's so valuable. And having talked to players from other organizations this spring, this place has everything a player could ever think about to prepare himself for an upcoming season. The weight room is like 25,000 square feet. They have every kind of machine you can imagine. They have gravity treadmills. They have steps, uh, plyometric machines. They have the biggest kettlebells I've ever seen. The kettlebells are like 150 pounds. I don't know who the hell lifts them. But they have everything that you could imagine. The weight room has sliding garage doors that take you out to an artificial field where they stretch and run and do sprints. They have a covered infield, and, and you may have seen Bo taking ground seen ball that. before yep. the sun came up. They can do so many things in such a short period of time. They have so many jugs machines that are used for fielding, cutoffs and relays, pitching. They're soon so many different things, and the players are engaged in every aspect. They have two cafeterias, one for the major leagues, one for the minor leagues. Their locker room has 100 <laughs> lockers in it. 
They have a swimming pool with three different levels for rehab. They have wow. four whirlpools in this big training facility. They must have 10 training tables and the staff to help out everybody. And the players understand the value of that nowadays because that's the way they've grown up. Whether they come from Vanderbilt or LSU or South Carolina, those great baseball programs, that's what they were used to in college. And now Mark Shapiro took the media through the complex and said, our players have everything they need. There is nothing in the outside world to help them get prepared for season that we don't have under the roof of this building. Pretty impressive. Yeah. Uh, John, you want to throw one quick one? We've got about no, a minute. No, no, because my question is long and pondering, and we'll, well save we'll it for next time. Save it for next time. Uh, Bucko, uh, fascinating stuff. Uh, we're glad you joined us. Um, we love you, and we, uh, we look forward to the beginning of baseball one week from today. Thanks, pal. You betcha. We're all looking forward to opening day. It'll be special there at Rogers Center for sure. It's great to hear you and Dan on the air together. It's so much fun. Thank you. Buck Martinez, we'll come back and wrap it after these messages. Uh, real quickly, Matthews gets his 50th last night. Do you yeah. think he regrets it was into an empty net? No. I mean, uh, guess who has more empty net goals than anyone else in the history of the National Hockey League? Wayne Gretzky? Correct. So I, a goal is a goal is a goal. We don't, uh, we, we don't measure it uh, any other way, and I, 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 don't think that that's, uh, I don't think that's a major issue. It's, it, it's now, in fact, I think there's a part of him that says, oh, thank goodness it's out of the way. So, yeah, I'm sure. Uh, you know, it's, uh, and I mean, to do it in 61 games, 62 games, I mean, my goodness gracious, Bob, that's, that's an amazing story. And we're going to see it. I think we'll see it uh, tonight in Edmonton, too, with Leon Dreisaitl, who's, uh, who, who can get to 50 now in, in a similar amount of games. We got to go. Have yourselves a swell weekend. Again, our thanks to Buck for joining us. Uh, until Monday, for John Shannon, Bob McCowan. See ya. <laughs>